Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, Hungary, Brazil, and a see in hell that's a celebrated dead fascist from Belgium. Starting out this week with a lot of the big news in the United States, I kind of took a break from it last week, but here we are again. This is the fallout from Donald Trump's attempted coup last year. The news in the last week has been pretty damning to the, to the former president, uh, specifically his cover for the attempted coup is rapidly fading uh, in a way that might pose serious actual legal consequences for him. Specifically, uh, we got a lot of developments in potential legal cases against Donald Trump and his allies. For example, Mark Pomerantz, the former prosecutor in what had been a potential felony investigation uh, for a number of like business record type felonies in New York State, uh, Pomerantz uh, recused himself of the situation. He resigned uh, after it became apparent that they weren't going to be charging Trump. In any case, Pomerantz has come forward in the last week and says that he thinks that Trump is guilty of, quote, several felonies, and that he thinks that it's a a real tragedy that he is not going to face justice for it. Uh, Additionally, we now know a lot more about what Donald Trump was doing on January 6th. We now have some records from Donald Trump's phones on January 6th, but there is a very telling seven-hour gap in these phone records on the 6th of January 2021. When was the seven-hour gap, you ask? Well, it was essentially between when Trump told people to storm the Capitol building and when they left the Capitol building, coinciding precisely with the actual assault on the United States Congress. Now, of course, it would be ridiculous. It would just be it would just be completely ridiculous to imagine that the president was just sort of like watching the TV and not engaging with this process or contacting anybody about it, that he was just sort of like passively experiencing this thing, which means that we know that he was in contact with people. We know that his official phone records don't list any of these contacts, nor do those of his associates. What this means is that they were probably using burner phones. Now, burner phones have come up in the January 6th investigation previously. We know that members of Congress and other people on Trump's staff were using them to contact fascists who were actually engaging in the physical violence of the coup. Trump claims that he doesn't know what a burner phone is, but because we know just like logically that he had to have been in touch with at least some people during the coup itself, there is every reason to believe that he was using burner phones, which means that we are potentially about to enter a season one of The Wire type time in investigating this coup, where we're trying to like trace back phone records and get the rights to determine, you know, if we can look at what phone numbers called what other phone numbers and like do all that detective work. Um, Additionally, we also know from the phone records that we do have on Trump on January 6th that he was calling exactly who you would have expected him to call. He was calling Mike Pence, presumably telling him to try to prevent Joe Biden from becoming the president. Uh, he was calling Matt Gates, a person who has appeared many times in this podcast as a go-between in Trump's relationship with the extreme right. Uh, he was calling Jim Jordan, uh, who is a 
another person who has been in a sort of go-between between Trump and the extreme right. Uh, he's been calling Senators Mike Lee and Tommy Turberville, who are other figures that are liaisons in this sense. Uh, so obviously we know that he was talking to these people, that he was trying to engage a coup. Uh, we also know now that uh, Mo Brooks, the representative from Alabama, has said that Trump has, quote, repeatedly and recently asked him to help overturn the 2020 election, and that Trump still believes somehow that he might be reinstated as the president if the Republicans take back Congress, uh, specifically the House of Representatives, in 2023. Um, Mo Brooks might be called in front of the January 6th Special Investigative Committee, and he's given indications that he might even help with the committee's investigation, especially presumably if he were going to be uh, protected from prosecution for his participation in the coup. We also have new word from several legal scholars that essentially they are they're fully recognizing and just like willing to use the words that Trump's legal strategy leading up to January 6th was to find a way to legally justify a coup. Uh, these are like federal judges who are using this word at this point. Uh, what this means is that uh, like the veil is being lifted here. It is becoming increasingly obvious that the president was in contact with people trying to stage a coup. And it is possible that we will get, in the next several months, it might take a year, but that we will get a recording of the president saying like, yeah, you know, kill Mike Pence. Or yeah, kidnap Nancy Pelosi. Uh, it might get that crazy. Uh, and when that happens, if it happens, it could be... I mean, arguably the most tumultuous political event in the United States since, I mean, since the president attempted to stage a coup last year. Additionally, on the January 6th end of the news, we now have some texts between Virginia Thomas, that is the wife of sitting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff during the coup, uh, in which uh, Virginia Thomas asks Mark Meadows to try to prevent Biden from becoming president. And she's using a lot of sort of like QAnon-style rhetoric and discussions about this, saying that like, oh, Biden and his allies are going to be sent to Guantanamo Bay to be prisoners. It's the completely fucking crazy stuff. Uh, this is only what we have from Mark Meadows's own admissions to the committee, like just what he has been voluntarily sharing with the committee. So we know that there's more. On top of this, uh, recall that Justice Clarence Thomas was the only person on the Supreme Court to vote to block access to Trump's uh, phone records and uh, other White House records regarding the coup, which uh, sounds like a conspiracy, right? Uh, it sounds like he was trying to prevent the incrimination of his wife for trying to prevent the inauguration of a political opponent president. Finally, in the United States, we have news that the United States government is restarting its investigation of RAM, R-A-M, the Rise Above Movement, a neo-Nazi organization that has been active for several years uh, and that has been recently uh, indicted under several federal charges for conspiracy towards violence. Specifically, the, the leaders of the organization have been indicted uh, for these charges. Uh, apparently, the founder and one of the defendants in this has fled to Eastern Europe, likely to Serbia. Um, they have been uh, under investigation for planning and inciting violence at various anti-fascist rallies and events, uh, including uh, Charlottesville back in 2017, um, the uh, so-called Battle of Berkeley in Berkeley, California. 
Uh, Ram has connections to the other organizers of the Unite the Right rally, to the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, uh, to Nick Fuentes, the leader of the Groiper movement. Uh, so there, uh, this investigation is potentially going to uncover a lot of really uh, web-like structures in the extreme right wing. Turning to Hungary, we have uh, some polls coming out about the upcoming election in that country, in which the Fidesz party, run by Viktor Orban, is looking like it's going to squeak out a victory against a completely united opposition. Now, this is pretty disturbing and quite bad, because it means that uh, the united efforts of every other major political party in Hungary is insufficient to defeat the increasingly fascistic Fidesz party. Uh, Fidesz, of course, is famous for its extreme nationalist and anti-queer politics. Finally, in international news, uh, I am sad to report that uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, was admitted to the hospital last week, uh, but has recovered. Uh, so he, uh, he is still going to stand for the presidential election in Brazil later this year. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are taking it back to the World War II era, and we're talking about the founder of the Belgian Rexist party, Leon de Grelle, uh, who was a Wallon fascist and German collaborator. Uh, for those who are unaware, the Wallon are the French-speaking peoples of Belgium, whereas the Flemish are the Germanic speakers in Belgium. So, uh, Dugrel was born in 1906 in southern Belgium, in a region of Belgium called Luxembourg, which is significantly bigger than the country of Luxembourg. His parents were respectable local bourgeoisie and conservative politicians. They were an extremely religious family attending mass every week, and this was reflected for the remainder of Dugrel's life. He attended Catholic school and law school, but finally eventually actually turned to uh, Catholic philosophy and journalism for his career. He, he never completed law school. He engaged in a career of extreme right-wing Catholic polemicism and journalism. Uh, he even traveled to Mexico to cover the Cristero Rebellion, which was an extreme right-wing Catholic rebellion against the revolutionary government of Mexico in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, by the 1930s, he had returned to Belgium and had transformed his extreme right-wing Catholic journal into an extreme right-wing Catholic party. And that is an extremely normal trajectory for such an organization. Uh, specifically, he transformed this magazine into the Rexist Party, a far-right clerical fascist organization for Francophone Belgians. Uh, the Rexist Party achieved several quick victories, uh, primarily not against the left, but against other right-wing parties, specifically the Catholic Party in Belgium, which the Rexists believe was uh, insufficiently right-wing, insufficiently conservative for their own purposes. And so they achieved several quick victories uh, against the Rexist Party. Specifically, they did very well in the 1936 election, uh, their first election, in which they gained 10% of the seats in the Belgian parliament. That's extremely good. Uh, this good showing in 1936 earned de Grel meetings with Hitler and Mussolini, and there were a lot of engagements between the Rexist Party and these other fascist movements in Europe. Uh, this uh, political star began to wane after the German invasion of Belgium in 1940. Now, de Grel initially proposed a neutral position, uh, saying that the war was the fault 
of Masonic and Jewish puppeteers in Britain and France. That, that, that wasn't a particularly unusual right-wing position at the time. But of course, the German invasion of Belgium made this position untenable. Uh, de Grel uh, first escapes to France, which didn't work because, you know, Germany quickly invaded and overran France in 1940. He tries to return to Belgium and seeks out the German authorities trying to be a puppet. But he realizes that there's essentially no future in civilian Belgian power. Uh, Germany was not really interested in a collaborationist government in Belgium. It was just it was just ruled by the German military, much like northern France, in an attempt to stave off a potential Allied invasion. So uh, instead, de Grel turns to cozy up to the German military occupation. Initially, he failed in this. The Germans didn't have anything to do with it. And people in Belgium thought that it was cowardly because, you know, this is literally him uh, trying to brown nose with their actual conquerors. Uh, then the situation changes after the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Nazis realize that they're going to need a lot more troops in order to invade and occupy Eastern Europe. And so they organize several collaborator battalions with fascists from various countries that they have conquered or which they have puppeted. Uh, one of these was the Wallon Battalion, which was led by none other than Leon de Grel. Uh, the Wallon Battalion does extremely well militarily, like like very, very, very well in the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, they eventually land under the command of the Waffen-SS, the paramilitary turned just like straight up military branch of the Nazi party. Uh, Dugrell gets the Iron Cross, which is one of the higher military decorations in Germany. Uh, he's joined the German military at this point. He's a German military officer. Um, and is frequently taken to Berlin as essentially the, the image of the perfect collaborator with the Nazis. However, of course, he has backed the wrong horse. And by 1944, the writing is on the wall. It's obvious that um, there is no way that the Nazis are going to win. Um, you know, D-Day has already happened. The invasion of Italy has already happened. The Allies are liberating Belgium from the Germans. Now, uh, Dugrel can't go back to Belgium because people fucking kill him. And he tries to, you know, work with the Germans to take Belgium back. He has promises that he would be in charge of it if he did so. But obviously, that's not going to work. So he attempts to flee to Spain. Uh, and he's trying to get to Spain in order to catch another flight to South America, uh, where he could potentially live out his life with, you know, the likes of, well, eventually a lot of the other Nazis uh, who end up in Brazil or Argentina, for example. Unfortunately for him, his plane crashes in Spain, and he has to spend a long time in the hospital in Spain recovering. Spain is dragging its legs, no pun intended, uh, on their uh, extradition efforts to extradite him back to Belgium, where he has been tried in absentia and found guilty of, like, you know, war crimes in collaboration. He's going to get executed. Um, but Spain doesn't want to extradite him because he's technically not a war criminal. Technically, he just joined the German military and fought really well. Uh, in any case, the Spanish government, that's the government of Francisco Franco, which by this point is not exactly fascist, but is um, sort of fascist adjacent. They help him escape into hiding. De Grel remains in hiding in Spain essentially for the rest of his life, um, emerging occasionally to say that, you know, he would voluntarily go to Belgium in order to face trial on the condition that his trial is public. You know, all these fascists are big hams. Um, instead, he remains in Spain 
like I said, essentially for the rest of his life uh, as a sort of fascist celebrity, you know, quasi in hiding technically, but not really. Uh, he's hobnobbing with other fascist exiles who spend a lot of time in Spain, uh, like Otto Scorzani and other folks like that. Um, his home in Malaga is a place that a lot of neo, neo-Nazis and other fascist people would go in order to pay their respects to such a dedicated fighter against communism. And that's where he lived out the remainder of his life, uh, which was long. Uh, he lasted until 1994, this day in 1994, March 31st, uh, when he died of a heart attack. So, Leon de Grel, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please leave a review. Please tell friends, family, and comrades. Uh, if you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That is also my Gmail address. If you'd like to get in touch with me by, you know, you want to make a question, you have a suggestion, uh, you have a complaint about, uh, the way that I've talked about something. I appreciate that. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at hist of the right or fascism 15. I have also been doing a mini-series on Tuesdays that chronicles the development of fascism over the last 100 years. It's 100 years of fascism. Uh, this week's episode was on the 1920s. Next week, that's next Tuesday, I will be talking about the 1930s. So stay tuned, and I'll talk to you later. Bye.